Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend, Chavruta and Gordon. Our dot today, Masech Kitubot, Dav Chav Gimel, page 23. Well, as I'm sure you noticed yesterday, we didn't touch the long Mishnah that gets started on the bottom of 22 on Chav Bet, which we're going to do today. And it is a very, very long Mishnah. Um, I got the Mishnah today, and we'll get the Mishnah tomorrow that starts off the new parak. Um, and it sort of touches touches on a variety of different topics. It's really a few Mishnayos sort of put together. Um, it's not really just one long Mishnah, but uh, and then the Gemara comes and sort of just gives like little tidbits for the sources for some of the items that are mentioned in the Mishnah. So uh, first it's going to, you know, be, again, continue with this discussion about the Zechut that a Sota could have that would delay uh, her having any effect from the May Sota. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon says, Ein There actually is no zechut that would uh, put off the effects of the Mayim Hamarim, of the bitter waters. But if you say the mer does hold for the curse-causing waters, okay? So in other words, this is very interesting. There's sort of two ways that the... Uh, that the water is referred to here, right? So we see this expression of mayim hamarim, uh, which is usually what we seem to always find, okay? But then we also will sometimes find this expression of the mayim hamarim, okay? So just notice, but it's basically, it's it's talking about the same thing. Then you basically you sort of you lessen you diminish, right? The you know uh, the the waters in the minds of all the women who drink it. In other words, every woman is going to have some type of merit. Every woman will have some type of zechut. So you know everyone's going to sort of hold, like what he's basically saying. Rabbi Shimon is no one's going to be scared to drink the water because their assumption would be like, okay, maybe I did this bad, but I did this good. And so this, you know, it's not it's not going to take effect on me. And so his point is, is that, you know, we just don't have any there. There's no zechutz at all, because then the purpose of what it's supposed to do in the whole process of Soto wouldn't really make sense. You also defame all of the Tahor women who have drunk the water and survived. Because then people will say like, oh, she survived Sota. It's not because she was actually Tahor, but it's because she had some type of Zuchut. And I actually hear Rabbi Shimon's uh, point here. Rabbi Omer, Rabbi Huda Nasi says, has Zuchut to right? The, the merit, the Zuchut holds its effects on this, uh, on this, you know, on this curse-causing water. But she will not have children and she will not thrive. Ella meet Navna the Halachat, but she wastes away progressively. And in the end, she still will die that death. So, what Rebbe is basically saying is he agrees that there can be Zuchut, okay? But all that Zuchut does is it sort of says that she won't have sort of that like immediate terrible punishment right away. And instead, it sort of will be a slow death. She won't have children afterwards. And I think what Rebbe is sort of saying to counter Rabbi Shimon is, is yes, Rabbi Shimon, you're worried that the Tahor women will sort of, will be defamed 
because that's what people will assume like, oh, she didn't die right away. But Revy's point is eventually it'll make itself obvious. Like eventually you'll know because of the fact that, you know, how she dies later on, that she doesn't merit to have children afterwards, that actually she was actually punished. Okay, now then the, the Mishnah talks about the Sota's mincha that she has to bring. Let's say the mincha that she brings becomes tame before it was sanctified in the, in the vessel. Then it's like all other minachot that become tame, right? Uh, before they're put in the clay sharet, before they're put in the service vessel. The tipada, and it has to be redeemed. But if it becomes tame after it's already sanctified in the clay, it's like all other minachot, right? That after they become tame, and it needs to be burned. Now, again, I think it needs to mention this because before, remember, there was a Mishnah that made a point of saying how the mincha of the sota is different. But when it comes to issues of tuma, it seems to be the same. All right. Now it goes on to talk about uh, these are uh, mincha offerings of the sota that have to be burned. How If she says, I, I, you know, I'm tame to you, right? She admits to what she did. And one of the witnesses comes and can testify that she uh, that that she did in, in fact commit adultery. Or if somebody says, I will not drink. And the husband doesn't want to, or a husband doesn't want to give her a drink. Right? Or the husband who uh, they they had a sexual encounter on their way to the Beit HaMidash. And also anybody who's married to Kohanim, minchotam nisrafot. All there, these are the minchas that actually get burned. So most of these are actually just cases of where somewhere along the way, the process became a little different. She either admitted to it, a witness came, the husband, she didn't want to go through with it, the husband didn't want to go through with it. And so you had this mincha that was supposed to be brought, so you just burn it in the end. The one that's really interesting is the one about uh, you know, anybody who's married uh, to a uh, Kohen. Uh, Anne, are you going to talk about this part in the Gemara or should I explain a little bit about it now? You can do it now. Okay. So basically the idea is that the Sota is married to a Kohen, okay? And this has nothing to do with whether she's a Bat Kohen or a Bat Yisrael, okay? What's ever left over of her Mincha after the Kimsa, after the Kohen takes that handful, right, has to be burned in the uh, in the ash sheep and isn't eaten, okay? Even though the comets, right, was already offered. Um, and the reason for this is, is that the Kohen's wife's mincha can't be eaten because technically it's owned by her husband, okay? And the the what's left over of her mincha is therefore burned, right? Uh, it, it's therefore, it's basically burned. So in other words, the issue here is, is that, sort of like the Kohen, the husband owns part of the mincha, but because her husband's a Kohen, he can't really partake in that mincha that was part of his property. That's that's how I understood what what what, what this was here. So it's kind of like an interesting, this is like a technical issue. Then the Mishnah goes on to say, Bat Yisrael shenisait with Kohen, Bat Yisrael who marries a, a Kohen, right? Mincha but her mincha has to be burned, but Kohenet shenisait l'Israel, but a Kohenet who's married to a Yisrael, she can eat hers, right? Because even though she's the daughter of her Kohen, her mincha is the same status of that of a, of, of a non-Kohen, right? So the Kometz is separated, 
it's burned on the altar, and then the remainder of it is eaten by the uh, is eaten by the Kohanim. Okay, uh, but the exception that we talked about. Sorry, I didn't mention there are psukim that talk about some of these laws. I didn't get into it just for the sake of time. Okay, now it's going to go through the Mishnah. We have a Mishnah here that's going to talk about the differences between a male Kohen and a female Kohen, a Kohenet. Ma bin Kohen le Kohenet, min chad Kohenet nachalat. The mincha of a Kohenet is eaten, u min chad Kohen ena nachalat. Whereas the mincha of a Kohen cannot be eaten, right? So the mincha of a Kohen is basically, it's entirely off, It's it, the whole thing would be offered on the Mizbeach, right? You don't take that fit that handful, the Kohenet, and then, you know, and then uh, the rest of it can be eaten. But the mincha of a Kohenet is the same of any non-Kohen, okay? And therefore, it can be eaten by all the male Kohanim, okay? The sota is the one that is the exception, okay? Because uh, of, you know, because of why the sota one is is actually brought, okay? So that is just, it's an exception. Um, and then it goes on to say, uh, a kohenet mitzchalelet, a kohenet can become basically permanently profane, meaning she's completely disqualified from any part of the kohuna. The kohen ain mitzchalel, but that is not the case with a kohen. So in other words, a kohenet can lose her status, right? And she can no longer eat truma, uh, and she can no longer marry any kohen at all, okay? Um, now this actually applies to all women. All women can lose their ability to... Uh, to eat truma or to marry a Kohen. But a Kohen, right, even if he marries one of the women that he's not supposed to marry, he doesn't lose, uh, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily become a halal because of that. He might be disqualified from some of his rights to do the avoda, okay? But as long as he's married to that woman, but if he divorces her, he actually can go back to doing those rights. So there are some differences there. A Kohenet can contaminate herself with Tuma from the dead. But a Kohen cannot. I just will mention an interesting little point here, which is not mentioned here, but which is a strong thing, is that women, though, who are married to a Kohen, there's a very strong tradition that many of them often will not even go to a cemetery on the chance that they could be pregnant with a male Kohen. So um, if you've heard of that, that's what it's based on. It's based on part of this mission. But again, it doesn't have to do with the Kohenet piece. It's not that she's a female Kohen. It's the possibility that she's pregnant with a male Kohen, and that would be the problem. Kohen ochel b'kadshe kachim. A Kohen may eat the kadshe kachim, right? Those are the different types of offerings. Ve'in Kohenet ochel b'kadshe kachim. But a Kohenet cannot, right? So we have two types of offerings, the kachim kalim and the kadshe kachim. Right. Um, and they have different types of rules. Obviously, the kudshe kudshim are a little bit stricter. They can they are, they have to be eaten, eaten within the temple courtyard, whereas the kudshim kalim can be eaten anywhere in Yerushalayim. But the but the for our mission of the purpose to make the distinction is that the kudshe uh, the kudshe kudshim can only be eaten by a kohen. Um, and then it's going to go on to explain sort of eight differences between men and women uh, in general. What are the legal differences, the halakha differences between men and women? A man, right, who is a mitzora has to let his hair grow and he has to rend his garments. But a woman who is a, uh, who has sarat, 
does not have to do those things. Ha'ish madir ebbenok benazir. A man can impose a vow of nazirut on his son. But a woman cannot do that. A man can shave at the conclusion of Nizirut on the basis of the Nizirut offerings of his father. We learned about this in Nazir. But a woman cannot do that on the basis of her father's Nizirut. A man can betroth his daughter. But a woman cannot betroth her daughter. A man can sell his daughter as a servant, but a woman cannot sell her daughter. A man is stone unclothed, but a woman is not stone unclothed. A man's body is hanged after he's put to death, but a woman's body is, uh, is not hanged, okay? Um, and then finally, a man can be sold for a debt. He can be sold in order to pay that off because he stole something. But a woman uh, is not sold. So again, these are a series of missions that are put together. I think it's interesting that it appears in Masachet Sota, where I think the Sota is sort of the ultimate, you know, war between the sexes, right? It's a man and a wife who are getting along so poorly that their marriage basically has to be trialed out in the Beit HaMikdash that it's appropriate that here's a Mishnah that comes and sort of emphasizes the differences between men and women, uh, you know, appears in this particular Masachet. Um, I think that one of the things that's interesting to me about these last the last bit of the Mishnah, right? These distinctions between the men and the women. I think that part of it is the, pres- like there's a given, it, it, all of these are taken as given that the halacha is going to accommodate a given in the reality. And I think that in the more recent generations or even just this one, right? Some of those assumptions have been called into question. And I I don't have an answer, right? Like, is it is it accurate to call those assumptions the underlying assumptions that make the difference in halacha to call them into question, or are they on target? And in in that vein, the part I want to read, and it's a tiny piece because, as we've said, this Mishnah really you know kind of takes over the daf, and also the parts of the Gemara that comment on the Mishnah are are I called them before snippets, right? It's as opposed to being a real in depth discussion. Although we do get to see a return to Nazir. And a recognition that, you know, there's going to be a conclusion to the Nazir point. But after that, on Ahmed Bet, towards the end of Ahmed Bet, it's going to take us to the end of the barrack. Ha'ish niskal arum. A man is stone naked, right? This is one of these distinctions, right? The woman would not be stone naked. Maitama, ragmu oto. Well, part of it comes from the fact that there's a verse in Vayikra in Leviticus where it says that the whole congregation is going to come and stone him. And it says explicitly, him, my oto. What does it mean, him? Ilema oto velo ota. If you want to say that it means him, but not her, if you want to say that it's it's very specific, that it, you know, that the word oto, that it means him here, is to exclude her. Well, hang on, there's another verse, right, in Devarim, and see for, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, pardon me. Um, where it says explicitly that you take out the man, 
or the woman, whoever has done this thing. Ela oto beloksuto. So instead, what we learn from the fact that it says oto, meaning him, is not him to the exclusion of her, but him with, but just him, only him, beloksuto, without his clothing him. And then the inference is more, I would say, more um, very, very precise to say him, also she would be stoned, but she would be stoned in clothing, not without clothing. And therefore it says, Oto, excuse me, <clears throat> him and not her. Um, I would say that this is one of those things where, you know, it's not presented as, a, as an asmachta, like a, a verse that is used to make the point after the fact, to give to give a halacha greater strength. But on the other hand, I feel like they were never going to stone her naked. They needed to find the verses, right? The verses lead to that conclusion. But I feel like the verses don't say explicitly, don't stone her naked. Everybody kind of knew that would have been considered inappropriate. And that's what I mean by these underlying givens. Haish um, nitleva'ein, right? So the, the man who is hanged, but the woman is not hanged. So again, what is this about? Maitama. Amakra vitalita oto ahaitz. So here we have, again, a verse in Sefer Dvarim, Deuteronomy, that you will hang him, him, on a tree. Oto v'lo ota. And this time, the Gemara likes that limut to say that when it says oto, it means specifically him to the exclusion of ota, her. And I would say, because again, there's this concern, there's this greater underlying concern about making the woman a spectacle in a way that would have been considered um, humiliating or, or derogatory in a way that really they really did draw this distinction between men and women. The man is sold for the fact that he's, it's not the fact, for if he's stolen, right? If he's stolen, now he owes the money. He, has, he can go into slavery, whatever, to be able to pay it back. But the wife, not the wife, I'm sorry, the woman would not be sold in into slavery for committing an act of theft. Why? My tama, what's the reason? So again, we have a verse. The verse this time is from Sefer Shemot, Exodus chapter 22, where there's a long list of these civil laws. He can be sold because of his theft. His theft, but not her theft. So again, the Gemara kind of is able the pronoun and be, I'm going to say, be dafka about it, right? To, to focus on it in a precise way when it can. And I, I would wager, and I think, Yordana, tell me if you disagree, but I think that this idea that clearly they weren't going to subject the woman to this type, type of, you know, selling her into slavery, the implications for her in that society, maybe in any society, and maybe they're wrong, right? But the givens were, that would be far more detrimental to the woman to be sold into slavery that it would go beyond, you know, doing work to to earn pay back her debt, but rather it could be really damaging to her. And there's much less, or perhaps no, concern about that for the man. Yeah, I I mean, to me it was like sort of an obvious. You know, I'm actually more surprised that the man is allowed to be naked. It it flies, it just doesn't seem like the Jewish way that we would do it. Right. Like we should, I, I agree with you. Right. It, to me, the, the idea that the process of being stoned should be humiliation enough rings truer to me than this idea that he should 
go out below Suto. So we have to derive that leap, you know, from the verse to say that he doesn't have his clothing, just him, just only himself, he's being stoned. I don't think that's an easy uh, drusha. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Marinkus Reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrum website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.